A good leader can make all the difference, can't they? You can have the dream job, the job that you wanted since you were a little girl or a little boy, but if you've got a bad boss, it can make the workplace unbearable. You know, the work should be good, but every day you dread going there because of what the boss might have in store or or what conflict might be coming. On the other hand, you can have the worst job in the world that you never would have chosen, but if your boss is good, it can, you can actually look forward to going to work, can't you? It can make all the difference. It's the same on a sporting team. If you've been on a sporting team with a good captain or a good coach or a bad captain or a bad coach, same in clubs, community groups, at school with your teachers. We see it in politics, don't we? Some people make good leaders, great leaders, and some people don't. And it's a terrible thing to be stuck under a bad leader, especially in an important area of life. And look, that's what we're seeing this morning. We're seeing the fall of King Saul. You might remember a few weeks ago, the nation of Israel asked God for a king. And God said, Okay, I'll give you a king, but he's the king you asked for. Okay, he's not going to be a good king. He started badly. And then last week, God sort of gave, well, God did give Saul and the nation of Israel a second chance. Do you remember that? And it was looking good by the end of last week, but I said, how long do you think it will last? Under a week. Well, today, things are going badly. Now, we're seeing events that happened some 3,000 years ago. We're going to see what kind of a bad leader King Saul was to the nation of Israel 3,000 years ago. But I want you to just keep in mind that this is all here to help us today to appreciate Jesus. So let's have a little skip forward to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. This is God talking to King Saul. This is the um, verse that's on your bulletins there. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you, King Saul, have not kept the Lord's command. What's going on in today's passage is a change of leadership in the nation of Israel. The change from King Saul, the old king, to a new king. A king who will be after God's own heart. Now, we won't meet this new king until chapter 16. We're not even going to meet him in this series. But his name will be David. And he will be a wonderful king. And the whole point of King David was to prepare the way for King Jesus. Have you heard the phrase six degrees of separation? It's this theory, I don't know how true it is, that everyone is connected to everyone else on the planet by six people. So pick anyone at random person on earth, famous or whatever, and the theory is that you know someone who knows them, who knows them, who knows someone, who knows someone, who knows them. Like you connect yourself to anyone else with six degrees of separation. I just say that to help you appreciate what's happening in today's passage because between King Saul, who we read about today, and you are three degrees of separation. It goes like this. King Saul is replaced by King David. King David was the prototype of Jesus. And Jesus is your king. So as we read today's passage about Saul, 
It is there to help you appreciate your king, Jesus. So let's keep all that in mind as we read 1 Samuel 13. Let's jump straight into it. Verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel for two years or for 42 years. Hands up if your Bible has two years. Three or four. Hands up if your Bible has 42 years. A few more. Hands up if you don't have a Bible busted. (laughs) If you look down the bottom of your page, there's a little footnote there. You know, the Hebrew original has two years. So from the time that Saul was first anointed king to the end of chapter 16 when David is anointed king, that is two years. But Saul lived a lot longer than two years. In fact, he was, he was actually acting as king for another 40 years or so. So the translators thought, you know, it can't be right that, that it was only two years, and they've fudged it by adding in a 40. It's a bit naughty. Thankfully, they've put a note down the bottom to say the original Hebrew was two years. Now, it is a bit of a surprise that the original Hebrew was two years, but that's what it should be. The Bible doesn't make mistakes. King Saul's effective kingship, okay, the time God saw him as the appointed leader of Israel was only two years. Sure, he might, after David was anointed, there's this ongoing time where Saul is kind of acting as king, but his kingship was cut short. He was rejected as king after only two years. And we're going to find out why this morning. Let's see what happens. Verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan, that's Saul's son, at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. So Saul's got 2,000 men. Jonathan, Saul's son, has 1,000 men. Now I wonder what's going to happen. Because we are now back in the territory that we were in back in chapter 9. Do you remember two weeks ago in chapter 9 where Saul did nothing? Where the Spirit of God came on Saul, the Philistines were there and Saul did nothing. Now since then, Saul was given a fresh start. He went way up north and he rescued the men from Jabesh Gilead in a massive victory. But now we're back in the Philistine territory of chapter 9 where Saul was told, do whatever your hand finds to do. I wonder what's going to happen this time with Saul's fresh start. Let's have a look. Verse 3. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. Did you see verse 4? Oh, then look at what happens in verse 4, sorry. So all, the Israel, so all Israel heard the news. Jonathan has attacked the Philistine outpost. That's not what's there, is it? That's another reason you should be following along in your Bibles, because I could say anything. What does verse 4 really say after Jonathan's attacked the Philistines? Have a look. Verse 4. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become an offence to the Philistines. All the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. I'm sorry, but this is not a good start. Jonathan attacks the Philistines. Saul does nothing, but Saul takes the credit. I mean, what kind of a leader is Saul? He's the kind of leader who does nothing and takes the glory for himself. He's a selfish king. Now, the contrast between Saul 
and Jesus could not be bigger, could it? Saul is nothing like your king. Your king is not a selfish king. Your king died for you. We're going to think about that in a little moment. But now let's continue on with Saul. All the people are summoned to join Saul at Gilgal, to join Saul who hasn't actually done anything yet. How do you think they're feeling when they arrive? How do you think they feel when they realise that Saul's got no plan at all? He's not doing anything. Verse 6, they are scared. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks, in pits and cisterns. They're hiding anywhere. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. They are scared out of their wits. The enemy's coming, the enemy's right there, and they have a leader who's not doing anything. Well, here's the next of Saul's big mistakes. And to understand what a biggie this is, let me just remind you of what God said to Saul a few chapters earlier. So back in 1 Samuel 10... This is what Samuel told Saul. Just have a listen as I read it. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Okay, that would have been attack the Philistines. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what to do. See, the next step for King Saul is that he's meant to wait seven days until Samuel comes. Samuel says, I will surely come down to you, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. It couldn't be clearer. Wait for Samuel. Now, Saul's obviously remembered this because Back in 1 Samuel 13, Saul waits the seven days as he was commanded. Well, half of it. Look at verse 8. He waited the seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Now, this is Saul's second problem here, and it's the biggest one. He simply disobeyed God. He was meant to wait till Samuel the prophet arrived and told him what to do. Okay? It's the seventh day, the day Samuel should have arrived. It's breakfast. Samuel hasn't arrived. Morning goes on. It's lunchtime. Samuel hasn't arrived. It's afternoon. Samuel still hasn't arrived. Saul's starting to get a bit worried. The men are starting to scatter in all directions. So Saul decides to take things into his own hands and he offers the offering that he was meant to wait for Samuel for. And straight after he offers it, so it's still on the seventh day, Samuel arrives. See, Saul should have waited. Verse 10. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, 
Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Now I don't know about you, but there's just a part of me that feels a bit sorry for King Saul at this point. Just as you hear his explanation, the people are scared. He's waited the seven days. The passage says that, doesn't it? kind of makes us feel sorry for him. That's the number God said. We feel sorry for Saul when we see things from his point of view because waiting for Samuel to arrive just seemed so foolish. And he's waited the seven days. He's done most of what God said. Surely that's enough. It's a very different point of view from Samuel, though. Verse 13. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the Lord's command. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And that's the point. What matters is obedience to God, especially for his king, especially for his representative before his people. From Saul's point of view, obeying God looked foolish, but obeying God is never foolish. Disobeying God is foolish. Even if every instinct in Saul told him, Samuel's not coming, make the sacrifice, he should have waited. He should have trusted God even when his intellect and everything in his gut told him to offer them. Samuel said, you must wait seven days until I come to you. Saul didn't trust that. Can you imagine having that kind of king as your king? No wonder the people were scared. No wonder they were trying to hide. They can't even be sure whether what Saul is doing is coming from God or whether Saul's just making it up. Thank God that your king is not like that. Your king always trusted God. King Jesus fully obeyed God. We'll think about that in a minute. We've seen Saul's selfishness. We've seen his disobedience to God. The third problem now is that he leads his people into sin. Let me just give you the highlights of chapter 14. It's quite long. We won't read it all now. But the nation of Israel are now shaking in their boots because they're surrounded by the Philistines, the angry Philistines, because Jonathan has just picked some of them off in a little battle. It's even worse, though. Because as we read on, we find out that the nation of Israel doesn't have any swords. Apparently, the Philistines have banned all the blacksmiths in Israel. Israel have to even now go down to the Philistines to get their plows sharpened. So none of the soldiers have any weapons. Saul, meanwhile, is doing absolutely nothing. In chapter 14, it says he's sitting down under a pomegranate tree. Worse than that, though... In verse 3, we find out that Saul is sitting under the pomegranate tree with, now listen to these names and see if they ring any bells, with Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. Eli. Do those three names ring any bells? 
They are the wicked priests who we heard about earlier in 1 Samuel. These are the descendants of the priests who God said would be punished because of their disobedience. So there's Saul doing nothing, surrounded by corrupt priests. Jonathan heads off to fight the Philistines. Look at chapter 6, sorry, verse 6 of chapter 14. Jonathan said to his young armour bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do you see the contrast between Jonathan, he who trusts God, and Saul who didn't? Verse 7, Do all that you have in mind, his armour bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. That phrase, do all that you have in mind, it's like what Saul was told to do when he did nothing. This time, though, Jonathan does something. He defeats a heap of Philistines. Now, when Saul starts to have a bit of a victory, Saul, sorry, when, jo- when Jonathan starts to have a bit of a victory, Saul starts to get a little excited. And what does he do? Grab his sword and head into battle? No, no. What does he do? Can you believe it? He commands the priests to bring the ark of God into battle. I'm not kidding you. Now, just remember back, this was the most stupid thing that happened in 1 Samuel 4, where the Israelites thought the ark of God was a lucky charm, and if they took it into battle, it would save them. And you remember, God punished them for it. It was terrible. That's why, where Ichabod got his name from. The glory of God has departed. God let the, the ark be gone. Hasn't Saul learned anything? Doesn't he have any respect for God at all? I'm not kidding you. Look at verse 18 of chapter 14. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of the Lord. And just to make sure we remember what's happened, it puts in brackets, at that time it was with the Israelites. They've got it back by now. Now, thankfully... They don't get around to taking the ark into battle because Jonathan, who's actually trusting God, is winning the battle. The Philistines are scattering. They're on the run. No thanks to Saul. He's not helping the problem. In fact, the ark isn't the only problem. Look at verse 24. Saul has come up with another stupid idea. Verse 24. Now, the men of Israel were in distress that day. Why? Because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before the evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Is Saul insane? These men are out fighting for him, and he's put them under an oath that none of them can eat. And what are his motives? Verse 25, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. He is completely self-absorbed. He's selfish. None of the Israelites are allowed to eat because he wants to win the battle for himself. The bottom line is the Israelite soldiers are so starving hungry and because of the vow they have made to Saul, it actually causes them to sin. Look at verse 31. That day, 
After the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ahijalon, that's under Jonathan's leadership, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with their blood. Then someone said to Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. Because in the Old Testament, that was forbidden. This time, Saul's foolishness has caused God's people to disobey him. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, Jonathan hasn't heard about this vow that you're not allowed to eat. So he stumbles across some honey and he eats the honey. And when Saul finds out, he orders that Jonathan be killed. Verse 44. Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head shall fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Saul has gone lunatic. And when the people see how foolish Saul is, they rebel against his orders, and they rescue Jonathan. It is a complete mess. And so by the end of 1 chapter 14... Saul has acted selfishly, taking the glory for himself. He's disobeyed God. He's led the Israelites into sin, and his leadership is so bad that they're forced to disobey him to do the right thing. He's completely self-absorbed. And yes, it is so extreme. But it is put here to help us appreciate Jesus. Because by the end of 1 Samuel 14, with all the damage that Saul is causing, we just want Saul to be gone. We just want Israel to have a good king who can lead them to follow God. And there was a better king than Saul coming. He was promised here in verse 14. His name was David, and he was a good king. We can read on about him. But when David came along, God promised to King David that one day an even better king will come. Fast forward to our king, King Jesus, because he was the king that was promised to David. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Turn with me to... Ch- Philippians chapter 2 and just listen to what the New Testament tells us about our king and as I read just compare him with Saul Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 Philippians 2 6 Start at the end of verse 5 there. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, Christ means king. Your attitude should be the same as that of King Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Do you see that? King Saul was grasping for power. Jesus let go of everything that he had to come into this world to be a servant. Jesus set aside his glory to come into this world for your sake. There can be no doubt at all about King Jesus' love for you. Just look at what he did for you. Not only did he come from heaven to earth, he gave his life for you when he died on the cross. King Saul led his people into sin. King Jesus died to rescue his people from sin. Look at verse 7 there of Philippians 2. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Your king was obedient to God. Obedient to death, death on a cross. Your king took the judgment of God in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be set free. What kind of a king does that? A good king. If there is any doubt at all about the goodness of King Jesus, there is no doubt, is there? If there is anyone worthy of obeying, it is King Jesus. If there's anyone worthy of ruling this creation, it is King Jesus. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. According to God, King Jesus is worthy of everyone in this entire creation following him. He now rules over this entire world and everything he does, he does to the glory of God. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus... Do you feel the comfort of that? Obeying King Jesus, it's not a burden. It's a joy. Everything King Jesus tells you to do is good. Everything. Whatever your king asks you to do, you can do it. You can give yourself wholeheartedly to his cause. Mind you, he does say some hard stuff. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever wants to lose his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And yet, When King Jesus tells you to live like that, you'll do it. When King Jesus says, deny yourself for his sake, you'll do it. 
When King Jesus tells you to lose your life for him, you'll do it. We'll do anything for King Jesus because he gave his life for us. So Israel asked for a king. Saul had a bad start. He was given a second chance. It lasted eight days. And now because of Saul, Israel is surrounded by enemies that want to kill them. They're scared. They've got a leader out of control. How do you think they must have felt under King Saul? Worried for their lives. Worried for their families. And this passage was meant to come to them as a comfort. Because God is saying to them, I have something better coming. I have a king coming after Saul who is after my own heart. And it will be wonderful living after him. Well, along came King David. And he was good. But then along came King Jesus. And he was better. And King Jesus is your king. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you that everything he did, he only ever did for you and for his people. And Father, thank you that obeying King Jesus is not a burden. It's a joy. And please help us to know King Jesus so well that obeying him is a joy. Please help us to understand his love for us that we will do anything he asks of us. Father, thank you for Jesus and help us to appreciate him so that obeying him would be just what we want to do. Amen.